uh, tonight to do an introduction to the Gospels. So we're finally to the portion of Scripture where we all feel like we can handle it a little bit. Um, yeah, there's uh, Tyler's got a few more sheets there. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna do this one tonight in two parts. I had a a lot going on. We've had a lot going on around here. So Matt uh, Davis. Um, A.K.A. the beautiful assistant, uh, <laughs> and the tech guy. Uh, Matt's gonna Matt's gonna uh, jump up here, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of split this one in half. So he's gonna jump up here and uh, take the second portion. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk. I thought that we would. I was trying to figure out how to do this. We're not gonna just walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, so I thought that we would we would start with a, a little bit of an introduction to the Gospels. What are the four Gospels? I want to talk about how we got the Gospels, and then um, we're gonna. I'll, I'll turn it over to Matt, and Matt can give you just a little bit of a sense of the harmony of the Gospels. How how do the Gospels fit together to give us a a full picture of the life of Jesus Christ? All right. So let me pray, and we will begin. Let me let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the rain. Uh, God, thank you for these who have come out in the rain to, to think about and to study uh, the, the four Gospels that you have given us to tell us about um, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would bless this uh, time together. I pray that it would be fruitful. Father, I pray that it would contribute to what we talked about this morning, that we would become masters of this book uh, that you have given us. We want to master this book we want to know it so that we can know you and your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have grace and peace multiplied. So thank you for that. Thank you for those promises, those great and precious promises. We pray that you would make those more of a reality tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So some basics. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of going with this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking nothing for granted right now. So a few basics. The word gospel means good news. Uh, so that's, that's the uh, euangelion is the, the Greek word for gospel. It means good news. But it came to, set to mean specifically this marvelous revelation that we have about Jesus Christ. And so the first four books of the Bible are known as the gospels. Matthew, I'm sorry, the first few books of the New Testament are known as the gospels. Matthew, Mark. Luke and John. Okay, these are not biographies like we would think of biographies. They include very little of Jesus' uh, first 30 years of his life, and each of the four Gospels omit uh, many of the most important events. So, um, there's one event, if you take out the, the, the events of the, of the Passion Week of Jesus' death and, and the week leading up to that. So all the Gospels close that, uh, cover that. But if you take that out, there's one event that all four Gospels cover. All four Gospels talk about this event from the life of Christ. Do, do any of you guys know what, what event it is that all four Gospels record? Gus. No, actually only one Gospel records the raising of Lazarus. Feeding of the 5,000. Yes, all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. So, 
Yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating, though. I, so we'll get to this uh, at the end, but John, who is writing much later, tells us the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, which is a pretty amazing story. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke decided not to include that. And so, you know, that, that kind of speaks to the fact that each of them, we'll talk about this too, but each of them have their own reasons for writing. Um, why do we have four Gospels? So wouldn't it have been easier for God to give us one exhaustive biography? Uh, but he, he didn't do that. There's four Gospels that give us the sum total of the life of our Lord. And we can rest assured that that is what God intended for us to have. Okay, so a couple of big words here. Um, the first three Gospels are known as the Synoptic Gospels. You may have heard that phrase before. Synoptic means um, something like to see together with a common view. Okay, so the, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they cover many of the same events in Jesus' life. So you may have noticed that when you're reading through Matthew, and then you read through Mark, and then you read through Luke, there's a lot of, a lot of continuity there. Much of the time, in the same order, nearly 90% of, of Mark's content is found in Matthew. And about 50% of Mark appears in Luke. And all of the parables are found in the Synoptic Gospels. There are no parables of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Okay, so you have the Synoptic Gospels, which were written first. And then you have the Gospel of John, which is written uh, a good bit later, towards the end of the first Century And it's very distinct from the other three Gospels. It contains a lot of theological content in regard to the person of Christ and the meaning of faith. So I, I, it's probably a little simplistic to think of it this way. But in, in some ways, the Gospel of John is filling in the gaps uh, for some of the things that Matthew and Mark and Luke chose not to uh, to tell us. All right. If we're going to know anything about the life that Jesus actually lived, we have to learn it from these four books. All right. And we should want to know the life that Jesus actually lived. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example for you to follow in his steps. Okay. Now, this is, this is very, very important. And I just want to say this, you know, as we, as we approach this. Jesus did not come just to leave us an example to follow. Um, this, it's often said, before you learn the lessons from the life of Christ, you have to receive the death of Christ. All right. So learning how Christ lived, living how Christ lived is, um, is sort of second to receiving the death that, that Christ died for us. So if you haven't trusted in Christ shed blood for your sins then any attempt to live like Christ is hopeless and useless. However, once you've become a Christian, then learning about the life that Christ lived is of great advantage to us. Because, and this is, this is kind of important, one day we will, we will take on the, the, the life of Christ in some kind of systematic form here at, here at Hope. 
Um, but, but it's important because Jesus lived a life like you and I lived. All right? The, the writer of Hebrews says he was tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. So you may think, well, why would I look to how Jesus fights temptation? Because Jesus lived the life that you and I lived without sin. How did he interact with his family? How did he treat his enemies? How did he pray? All of these things are things that we can look at in the Gospels, and they would be worth every minute of our investigation. Um, the Apostle John was so overwhelmed with the task of writing about Jesus that he says in John twenty one twenty five, There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they had been written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that verse. Jesus did so many things that if we wrote them all out, the books couldn't contain them. So when we get to be with Christ... How many more stories are we going to learn? How many more Lazaruses? How many more, you know, paralytics that got let down through ceilings? How many more, you know, amazing stories? You know, it, it, the, if you had, you know, uh, we've got, let's see. Uh, I'm going somewhere here. I should have already marked this out. All right, but there's, there's Matthew, Mark. John. So, so God in his providence decided to give us that many pages contain, you know, concerning the, the life of our Lord Jesus. So how much more is there out there? Um, which also you know, speaks to the, the point about the feeding of the 5,000. If you've only got those many pages and you decide to, to include one story four times, that must mean that God would want us to pay pretty close attention to that one story, right? We were in uh, high school Sunday school today. We went over, we've been going through the, the prophets. We haven't gotten very far, uh, but we were in Isaiah. We were looking at the story of Hezekiah. The story of Hezekiah appears three times in the Bible. It appears in 2 Kings, it appears in 2 Chronicles, and it appears in Isaiah. You know, again, three times that, that God gives us that story. So these are the kind of things that we want to make sure that we give our attention to. Um, okay, I, I've got us divided here into some questions. Number one, why is it important that God gave us four questions, four Gospels? Um, okay, number one. So your faith is uniquely grounded in history. All right? So our faith is not based on some guy who went up on a mountain and had some kind of metaphysical experience and he came down and started sharing his thoughts. Right? That's, that's not our faith. Our faith is different. Our faith, the, the Bible that we have is, is God recording for us his acts entering into history. God breaking into history. And so we're talking about something that's being re re recorded for us that is very amazing. The God of the universe revealed himself to human beings because that's the way we would be able, that's the only way we would be able to know anything about him. So there's, there's a lot of talk about the chosen, you know, and um, is the chosen good or bad? You know, some, some Christian people are saying don't watch the chosen because we're not supposed to make images of Jesus. I, I personally, we've enjoyed the chosen. Um, we have a nephew who's like a chosen fanboy who loves the chosen dearly. Uh, I'm not opposed to the chosen, but I think it's worth noting 
that God decided to give us his word in written form, right? Like, he could have waited until the time of video cameras to give us, to reveal to us what he wanted to. And he could have said, you know, here's a DVD set of everything I want you to know. Record it. But he didn't do that, right? He gave it to us in, in word form. So, you know, regardless of what you think about the chosen, the chosen is not the, the word of God revealed, right? And so we want to we wanna make sure that we stick with the word of God that is revealed to us. We human beings have two major setbacks uh, when it comes to knowing God. Number one, we are finite and we can't even begin to understand a God who is infinite. We, we can't, if, if he doesn't choose to reveal himself for us, to us, we, we can't even begin to understand him. And then secondly, uh, we are fallen. So we are actually offended at the very thought of God. I was, I was telling the high schoolers this morning, we because we, I was, sometimes when I get into high school, Sunday school, I end up talking, I'm more excited about what I'm going to be preaching than I am about what I'm, you know, going to teach in Sunday school. So I'll give them a little sneak preview sometimes. But we were talking about, depending on the Bible, depending on the Word of God, I heard this, this exam, this illustration today on the way to church of a, you know, we want, so the, the point here, we're, we're offended at the very thought of God. We don't like him being God over us. Um, and, you know, I was talking about how we, we kind of, our sinful hearts want to be free. Like, we want to set ourselves free. And the illustration that I heard was of a spaceman who's doing a spacewalk. And he's, he's attached to the spaceship with a, a lifeline. And, you know, so that's keeping him from floating away, and it's giving him his, the air that he breathes, the oxygen that he needs to breathe. Well, that spaceman could say, I just want to be free of this. Like, I am tired of being tethered to this rocket. I'm going to set myself free. So if he unhooks himself for that, from that ship, and he floats off into the abyss, and he can't breathe anymore, woohoo, he's free, but he's also going to die. Right. So and, and I think that's a really good illustration of like our desire to be, you know, sinfully to be free from these things. But if we cut ourselves, if we cut ourselves loose from the things that God has revealed to us, then we're actually doing ourselves great harm. OK, uh, one more thing I want to say uh, just in, by way of introduction and talking about why gave us, God gave us four Gospels in both Testaments. I think I covered this back in the beginning of the Old Testament. But God reveals things to us in two stages. So he, he uses what we would call event revelation or history revelation. And then he uses word revelation. So like in the Old Testament, you have the books of history that reveal the things that God did. And then you have the prophets who come along and explain that for us. Because we wouldn't really know what those things mean, exactly what God intends for them to mean if, if the prophets didn't do that. So in the New Testament, we have the Gospels and Acts, which tell us the things that God did in history. And then we have the epistles that then help us understand those things and explain those things to us. All right. And then in both cases, God reveals himself in this event revelation, this historical revelation, like right in the middle of the world stage. So in, in the Old Testament, he sets the people free from, from Egypt um, and, and Moses leads them out. And it's, it's this grand drama that, that unfolds that the whole world can know about. And he does the same thing in the New Testament. 
In the New Testament, Jesus lives, dies, and raises from the dead right in the middle of the Roman Empire. When Paul is speaking with King Agrippa in Acts, he says these things were not done in a corner. Jesus did not do his miracles in hiding. He, they weren't secret. They were right out there for everybody to see with lots of witnesses. And so people could know that these things, that there were eyewitnesses. So, so we're going to talk about this in a minute. But when Luke goes around and starts trying to find eyewitnesses to write his Gospels, he's able to go and find people who saw these things, who actually saw these things that happened. All right? So the question becomes then, hold on. Um, the problem with history is that it happened so long ago. How do we know that these historical events recorded for us about Jesus actually happened? And so throughout the Bible, what we have is this standard for a matter being established. So Deuteronomy 17, 6 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. Um, Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. All right, so, so this is what we have in the four Gospels. We have Matthew, who is an eyewitness to Jesus' life. We have John, who is an eyewitness to Jesus' life. They're both apostles. Mark, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is actually widely understood to be Peter's uh, telling of the Gospel. And then you have Luke, who is not an eyewitness, but he explicitly says that his intention was to go around and collect eyewitness accounts from the gospel. So, by, by historical standards, we don't have two witnesses, we don't have three witnesses, but we have four distinct witnesses to the historicity of Jesus Christ. I would add to that, if you struggle with the different perspectives contained in the gospels, okay? Now, I don't believe that there's any perceived inconsistency in the Gospels that cannot be explained. It gets really fuzzy around the resurrection. Is there one angel? Is there two angels? Who showed up first? Who was running? Who got to the tomb? Um, I, I, there, one writer that I, I read one time said, you know, the, the, the fact of the resurrection is, is sort of almost proclaimed to us by the fact that there's, there's this sort of fog around it of like, what did you see? What did you see? What did you see? They're all, they're all saying what they experienced when this crazy thing that nobody was expecting happened. But think about this. What if all four Gospels copied down exactly the same material for the world? Wouldn't that seem to give some sense of like collusion? Like that everybody just got together and decided on what was going to be said and wrote that down. But that's not what we have. God has given us four independent eyewitnesses. Not one of them is exhaustive. All right? And here's the point. God has framed the Gospels in such a way that if we're willing to do the hard work, we can come away 
with precisely the picture of Jesus Christ that God has intended us to have. Okay, so so I think that principle of three or four of, of two or three witnesses with us having four witnesses is a lot of what's at play here with the Gospels. All right, any any questions about all that? All right. I want to just mention, and Matt's going to kind of take over in this area in, in just a minute. But we, we sometimes talk about harmonizing the Gospels. And, and so the, the idea of harmonizing the Gospels is when you sort of use all four of the Gospels to bring together a well-rounded view of Jesus' whole life. All right. Now, I would contend that harmonizing the Gospels should not take the place of reading the Gospels individually. Because each of the gospel writers has a point that he's trying to make and a way that he's trying to say it. Um, but, but they don't always write out Jesus' life in the same sequence. Okay, So uh, what, what Matt's going to do for us in a, in a few minutes is try to sort of bring some of those episodes together in Jesus' life in a way that, that we can kind of see how he actually lived out that life. Okay, um, so, so just a few things. All the Gospels begin with Jesus' ministry with baptism and immediately have him going out to the wilderness to, to be tempted by Satan. So they, they all start there. Um, each of them has Jesus beginning his ministry and then returning to Galilee. But John, only John, in the first four chapters of John, if you remember when we went through the Gospel of John, has chapters 1 through 4, which tells us what happened between the baptism and his ministry up in Galilee. Okay, so again, no gospel writer is trying to give a comprehensive biography of Jesus. And each of them is writing different aspects of Jesus' life to try to make the point that he wants to make. Okay? All right. Let's talk about how did these four gospels come to be produced. Um, so this is probably more than you want to know, but there, there is among scholars a discussion about what was the order of the Gospels. How were they written? So we would hold to a, an order of the Gospels that is the same as the way that they are given to us in the New Testament, all right? So we, we would, the, the fancy word would, would say that, that we, we believe in, in math, Matthean priority, okay? But a, a view that has really taken hold um, has Mark being written first. And the reason is, the reason that they believe Mark is written first is because it's so short. And so one of the big reasons is they want to say, that this is the sort of like nugget root form of the gospel that then the other synoptics build off of. Okay? And so that's, that's not what we believe. We believe that, that, that these, these books were written in the order in which we have them. So I want to I wanna spend a, a few minutes with this because um, this, this isn't as much of an issue as it used to be. But uh, back when the Da Vinci Code came out, Y'all remember the Da Vinci Code? Um, it, this was kind of a this was kind of a big deal 
So, so here's a quote from the, the Da Vinci Code. How many of you read the Da Vinci Code? Has anybody read the Da Vinci Code? Just Matt and I? We read it for that class we were taking. Uh, um, all right, so here's a, here's a quote from the Da Vinci Code. Who chose which Gospels to include, Sophie asked. Aha, T-Bing burst out with enthusiasm. The fundamental irony of Christianity. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. All right, so that is, you know, the great historian Dan Brown's uh, perspective, okay? And, and so the, 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 the media and maybe like the liberal academy, they have sort of united together today to promote this idea that after Jesus' death, there was this sort of free-for-all with the gospel literature, um, what one scholar has said that during that time, Gospels were producing like rabbits. All right, so we don't believe that. Um, as recently as 2006, National Geographic unveiled their Gospel of Judas. We have other Gospels, alleged Gospels, with names like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Egerton Gospel, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Hebrews, and the Gospel of the Egyptians. All right, so we got Gospels all over the place. And so all of this does raise the question of, like, with all these Gospels, how did we end up with just four? And how can we know that the church chose the best ones? And the picture, again, that has been painted is that, you know, after Constantine legalized Christianity in the middle of the fourth century, um, you know, everybody sort of got together and, and chose the four Gospels. And stronger bishops muscled up on weaker bishops. And we ended up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right. Um, all right, so, so just to be clear, there is no reason to believe that that decision was made by 30 or so bishops in the middle of the 4th century. All right? The process would not have been as mysterious as that, and it's not difficult at all to demonstrate in church history that within just a few decades of Christ's death and resurrection, the Gospels that we know and, and, and read today we're already being respected as the word of God. Okay, so, so what I want to do is I want to talk about sort of how the, the production of these four Gospels happen. So I encountered a professor by the name of David Allen Black uh, from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has a little book. It's not a very difficult book. It's a short book. It's called Why Four Gospels. And uh, I've read the book, and I've had, a I've had a chance to sit down and talk with him. I've also heard him give a lecture, and uh, the, this, is, this is the summary that he has put together of how we came to have our four Gospels, okay? Um, so I have there in your notes that he calls the first phase of the Gospels uh, the Jerusalem phase of the Gospels, of Gospel production, okay? Now, and, and, and so what, what he's doing here is he's taking some historical fact and then he's, he's sort of like making a few assumptions, but they're good educated assumptions to make about how we got these Gospels. Okay, so the, the Jerusalem phase is under Peter, and we find it in uh, Acts 1 through 12. Okay? Um, so we read in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit fell upon the 12 apostles and the other 120 on the day of Pentecost... And they needed to go everywhere, and they needed to preach everything they had learned from Jesus. So at this point, with the church in its infancy, 
Um, these 12 apostles were the supreme authority by virtue of the fact that they were the eyewitnesses. So they are the ones that Jesus had entrusted with being his witnesses. And they were at that time sort of, they were leading the expansion of the church. Basically this, if you had a question about Jesus during, during this time in Jerusalem, you could go right to one of the 12 apostles, 12 apostles and you could, you could talk to him and learn from him about Jesus. Let me read you this quote from, um, from Black. He says, As soon as the waves of converts had been baptized and their instruction organized by the 12, the apostles' thoughts turned to the practical question of how to unify and consolidate their teaching about Jesus. The apostles realized that they somehow needed to promulgate those passages of the Holy Scriptures from Moses to all the prophets, according to Luke 24, 27, that Jesus had explained to Cleopas on the road to Emmaus. It, became, it also became clear to them that their main goal was to demonstrate to the Jewish authorities that Jesus had literally fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah. These considerations were the original motivation for the composition of the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, so it's hard for us to imagine this today. You know, it's, uh, is it Rosh Hashanah? Is that what's, it's Rosh Hashanah right now. Did y'all see all the, all the Jewish people going back and forth to the synagogue this morning? So it's so hard to picture a time when the whole church was Jewish, right? But the whole church was Jewish. That's going to change. But for this time, Matthew writes an account primarily written for Jewish believers that talks about Jesus' ancestry as the son of David, the virgin birth, his birth in Bethlehem, the work of John the Baptist, the miracles of teaching with authority, his coming to fulfill the law of Moses, his suffering like the servant in the book of Isaiah, his rejection by his own nation, and his miraculous resurrection from the dead. All right? And so church tradition tells us that this important work was entrusted to Matthew not long after his ascension. And that was Matthew's task. Now, this, so a scroll, I talked this morning about, you know, in the old, in the ancient days, you had scrolls. A scroll was about 30 feet long. About a 30 foot long scroll was easily enough, you know, trans, transportable if you're carrying a, a scroll under your, under your arm. Um, remember, Jesus himself had instructed them to, to, to travel light, you know, so they're not looking to like put a whole library in a, in a big wheelbarrow or anything like that. Um, and, and then John's account that we read earlier says all the books in the world couldn't contain what Jesus did. All right. So Matthew is, is highly educated and he puts together this sort of manifesto of the mother church in Jerusalem on a on a 30 foot scroll. And so this becomes the fundamental document of the Christian faith. And this is the document that the apostles are able to carry with them out into the world to uh, to spread the gospel. All right. And, and this this phase comes to an end around the persecution of Herod Agrippa, like we said in Acts chapter 12. And this causes the apostles to disperse. And they've got the gospel of Matthew with them as they go. All right. Which then leads to the Gentile phase. And this would have been under the apostle Paul. All right. So three events take place that, that start this Gentile expansion phase. Number one, the disciples disperse after the martyrdom 
of, of Stephen in Acts 7, the conversion of Paul in Acts 9, and then very importantly, the reception of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. So now that the Gentiles are being welcomed into the church and they have no obligation to be circumcised or to obey the regulations of the Jewish law. Okay, so up until this point, the apostles have been primarily concerned with Jewish uh, issues. But now, now under this Gentile phase, with Gentiles, this rapidly uh, uh, growing church, um, there's now other considerations, other people who need to hear the gospel. All right? And so you have Paul going out on his missionary journeys, and he's, he's carrying probably the gospel of Matthew with him. And so, so here's, here's sort of an educated guess that, that what happened next. At some point... <clears throat> Perhaps while Paul is being held under house arrest and uh, in Caesarea Maritima uh, under Herod Agrippa, um, and somewhere along that time, Paul begins to see the need for an account of the gospel that is better suited to the thinking of the Greek world. So he's carrying Matthew. Matthew is very Jewish. And so Paul chooses his friend Luke, who's been traveling with him, and at the end of the third journey, he dispatches Luke to go and interview many of those who had known Christ and to prepare a new gospel document modeled on Matthew. And so what's interesting is that Luke would have produced another 30-foot scroll, which, which accounts for the fact that Matthew and Luke are about the same length. Luke basically follows the same structure as Matthew with a few deviations. Um, for example, Matthew's account of Jesus' birth is uh, mainly apologetic, whereas Luke's account is more of a narrative. And it comes pretty obviously from Mary herself. Mary treasured these things in her heart. Luke seems to have a very close connection with Mary for that story. And the whole time, <clears throat> Luke is keeping his eye on a Gentile audience. All right, so Luke completes his task in time for Paul to go to Rome with Luke's account in hand. But at this point, there's two problems. Number one, eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ need to come from and be authenticated by an eyewitness. And then secondly, there's the problems that are going on between the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. And so Paul would have been then reluctant to publish this document until it had been authenticated, all right, by one of the eyewitnesses. All right, which leads us then to the Roman phase. Okay. Um, which is under Peter and Paul. All right, here's what's really interesting, and I, I, I'm going to wrap this up quick and turn it over to Matt here. Um, you're, you're going to say, where in the world is this coming from? And I'm going to tell you where it's coming from. While Paul was a prisoner in Rome, Peter came to Rome. And so Paul prevailed upon Peter to find a way to validate Luke's gospel. So I'm quoting here from, from Black. Peter's plan was to give a series of speeches in the Roman location that he had designated for weekly worship. His secretary, Mark, helped prepare these talks which were bound to excite the interest of the most influential Christians in Rome, including members of the Praetorium. All right, so 
So listen, this is, a, this is a statement from Clement of Alexandria. Okay, so this is one of the early church writers. He's writing around between 150 and 200 AD. He records Mark, the follower of Peter, while Peter was publicly preaching the gospel at Rome in the presence of some of Caesar's knights and uttering many testimonies about Christ on their uh, asking him to let them have a record of these things wrote the gospel that is called the gospel of Mark from the things said by Peter. All right? So you have Peter and you have Paul in Rome carrying Matthew and Luke. And Mark, Peter comes and gives this sort of explanation of the gospel that Mark records that is a, is a like, um, bringing together of, of Matthew and Luke, and that comes to us. So on the point of days, Peter and Mark, uh, Peter with Mark in attendance, went to the rostrum and armed with the scroll of Matthew and the new scroll prepared by Luke. Peter's intention was to refer to those incidents in the life of Jesus, which he had been an eyewitness or could personally vouch for. And there would be nothing about the birth or the resurrection in the narrative about the collection of Jesus' sayings in Luke's central section. The simple fact that Peter was prepared to devote so much attention to this new work by Luke shows that he believed it to be worthy of adoption in its entirety by the church. Okay, so therefore, Mark can be seen as the result of a collaboration between Peter and Paul to make sure that the spiritual doctrinal unity of the universal church was not impaired by the result of Luke beside Matthew, all right? So, so that's, that's how we come to have, according to, according to this, this is, uh, this is David Allen Black's work. He's, he's looking into the church fathers. He's, he's asking, you know, how these things came to be. This is his, um, this is his sort of construction of how the three synoptic gospels came to be um, prepared, all right? Uh, any, I know that's, that's a lot. Yes? Um, let's see if I've got that here. He, does, he writes, it's a fascinating book. I, I, I highly recommend that you get it. Uh, let me see if I've got... Yeah, 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 I do. I, I, I was... I was thoroughly, I was thoroughly convinced by what I read, and then when I had the chance to talk to him, I was thoroughly convinced by what he, um, and, and, and he's got other uh, citations from the patristics where he's, he's backing these things up. I only, I only include, I don't have any of the dates in there. I, I, I would recommend the book. It's, a, it's only about 90 pages. Um, I taught Life of Christ to the high schoolers, uh, to the, the kids here at church, the homeschool kids last year, and I had them read, read it. And, uh, you know, they were appropriately affected. <laughs> yes. The name of the book is Why Four Gospels? Um, let me see if there's anything else I want to add. I want to wrap this up because I want to turn it over to... to um, I, I'll just close with this. This is in contrast, or rather rejection of the notion, which prevails in synoptic studies. Uh, which has been characterized as the idea that the historical data behind the synoptics was an unorganized conversation or a casual reminiscence provided by unnamed or unknown preachers working without any control or else the work of local teachers in undocumented non-apostolic churches manipulating material 
the origin of which is obscure. If you've read in this area at all, you may know like they, you know, some people presuppose that there is some other document. They 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 call it Q that all of the gospels are drawing from some other unnamed, uncertain document. I I don't believe that that's the case. I I I think that I think that the gospels came to us Matthew first. And then I, I think it's a very reasonable assertion that, that Paul had Luke write an eyewitness account. And then you have this, this sort of statement from Clement, of, uh, from Clement here that, that, that Peter came to pull those things together and that Mark recorded it. And then I'll just mention John then. Um, John writes a bit later. Um, and the date of publication probably from Ephesus, was just before his death at the end of the century. And, and his purpose was to supplement, then, the three synoptic Gospels. Um, all right, so just having this in view, we cannot simply regard the Gospels as a sudden and inexplicable outburst of genius. They are the fruit of a long process initiated and determined by God and the calculated result of divine guidance. All right. So that's just a little that's a very, very brief summary of of a, a possible and I would say a good uh, summary of how we, we got our four Gospels. All right. And, and I would just encourage you, really, whether you buy David Allen Black's explanation of how it happened, don't be fooled by the, the people who want to say that this was just. You know that these that a bunch of bishops in Rome, 400 years later, got together and, and tried to pull these together. That's that's not the case. These these four gospels that we have were very very early uh, authenticated to be the word of God, the true um, presentation of, of who Jesus is and and what he did. All right. All right. So well, yes, Tyler. Yes, yes, yes. That, that they, that, and I think, I think he said that in that quote I read. It's, that's them pulling together. But we got to write something. Let's let's put this together, and it has a very Jewish flavor to it. So, all right, Matt. This is Matt Davis. Well, you could have spoken of it. He always do our it, panel. He always makes it a lot smaller. So when he preaches, and then I get up the next week, and it doesn't even get to my ears. That's my head. I was the kid in uh, little league baseball that had to have my own special batting helmet because my head was so big it didn't fit. Like the small ones would just sit on top of my head, you know. So it's it's been a it's been a thing all my life. I'm sorry to hear that. That's alright. <laughs> It's always the week after that I preach that uh, it pops a lot because he just like, <laughs> makes it. All right, if you've got um, your form, your uh, handout, turn to this page. So if you take the four Gospels, when we, David talked about harmonizing. If you take those four Gospels, uh, again, as a witness uh, to themselves and to the life of Christ, you put them together, uh, you're going to find something that is very similar to this uh, outline here. There's some some things that um, you, even if you remember when we went back and talked uh, talked through the Gospel of John, 
you know, the reason that we know Jesus' ministry is three and a half years was because of the supplement uh, later given to us by John. So there's a lot of uh, need for the harmony and to help understand uh, Jesus' mission and how that worked out and, and, and what he was doing along the way. But I'm with David that each book was written for a purpose to be understood, to be understood for, for the purpose with which it was written and to uh, not to, the, you know, not just specifically, oh, John's supplement, was, I mean, John's gospel is a supplement, so that makes it lesser of importance. That's not actually the case. So, all right. One of the things that we have to know, and we, we say this all the time, but the first 30 years of Jesus' life were very ordinary. They were very um, normal, uh, aside from the whole, you know, sin thing. Uh, they, he, he lived a very normal life of a child uh, growing up, probably learning his father's trade and all, all of the things until he was about 30. And that's when he begins his public ministry. Um, and we, we, we have to remember a couple of things, too. What, one of the things that we, we you know, ascribe to here at Hope is that reality that um, the kingdom of God is of great, great importance in, in the storyline of Scripture. Um, and when the, the Jewish people were, you know, a nation was created, and, and you have your tabernacle, you have your temple, you have your, your kings, uh, you know, David, Solomon, uh, Saul even, this idea of, you know, land and people and kings and, and, and by God ruling by way of a monarch was, was a huge, huge part of the history of the nation. And so when, when Jesus comes on the scene, of course, prophetically, who has to come first? Before the Messiah. John. John the Baptist. The forerunner, right? The forerunner is going to come, uh, you know, make way, you know, the, the, the voice calling in the wilderness. And what was John's message? Repent, Repent but why? The kingdom, the kingdom is coming, right? And then when Jesus shows up, what's his message? Repent, or the kingdom is near. It's, it's here. And so he, and he doesn't go into a great deal of explanation as to why, like what is the kingdom of God? Why? Because the people who were hearing it would have understood it to be exactly what it was before. There was no big shift in that. And the reason I say this is because what Jesus is going to do, he's very, very strategic uh, in his ministry, okay? Very strategic. When he goes into his opening uh, public ministry, He's going to focus very specifically, almost his entire uh, ministry is specifically geared towards the nation, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Okay, And so, so that's who he came to preach the kingdom of God to, to, to work to establish this. And so this is what's going to uh, really, of course he's going to make atonement, of course he's going to uh, bring this reality to, to bear. But he is coming to say, I am God, I am also the Messiah, I am God in the flesh, but I'm also the king. Okay, and that was his message. So, the, if you look to the left there, where it says public presentation, he's uh, two and a half years. This, this time frame of public presentation, he was seeking out crowds. He was working miracles. He was traveling throughout the land of the Jews. As it says, saturating the area with his claims and with proof of those claims by means of miracles. <clears throat> the miracles are... are, are the way by which he was validating his message, okay, the way by which he was validating the words that he was speaking, he was performing these miracles. So that second column, it's, it's kind of the time frame in which these things took place. 
So the, the, the opening public ministry of Jesus is about three to five months. You have the ministry of John the Baptist. You've got his baptism and then his temptation. Uh, and then in John 2, you have the miracle of the water to wine performed at Cana, where he first demonstrates his glory. Um, that's also the time frame where, uh, again, supplemented by John, we begin to see uh, some of John the Baptist's uh, disciples and followers start to follow Jesus. You know, and go off, we, we, we you know, you have that time when uh, Jesus comes up to, to the boys in the boat, right? And he's like, hey, come follow me. And they just get up and go, and, and which is an amazing story in and of itself. But uh, I think by that point in the ministry, uh, they had seen Jesus. They had talked to Jesus. They had known Jesus because they met him kind of way back here. Uh, during some of that ministry of John the Baptist. And so, although it was still, yes, amazing that, he, that they went up and, and left, it wasn't because they didn't know who Jesus was. They did know who Jesus was. So then it moves into the early Judean ministry of Jesus. Now, this is where Jesus cleanses the temple at Jerusalem during the Passover. Uh, and we, we know that this is one of two. Uh, a lot of... Um, Again, with the supplement of John, we, we know that there is not one uh, cleansing of the temple, but two, which I always think is such an interesting thing, and I'll talk about this at the end, but the fact that he cleansed the temple and basically got away with it, and, and, and I don't get away with it is maybe not the best way to say it, but there were not the repercussions that happened much later, and I'll talk about that on the, on the second, uh, during the second one. But I just think it's so interesting that, that he goes in and he, and he does this thing. And it's really uh, quite astounding. So then uh, the early ministry is also in Nicodemus. Uh, this, the Sanhedrinist comes by night in John 3 to, to meet with Jesus. He's curious. This is where Jesus says, you must be born again uh, to Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus also begins to gather to himself those who had already believed John's message. Um, and, but then at the end of that time period... Uh, John the Baptist is arrested, which things are getting hot, you know, to say it plainly. Things are getting hot. And so Jesus, uh, you know, right, I'm not going to draw, but if just north to south, right? Uh, the Judean, Jerusalem, all this ministry is happening down here in the south. At that point, he goes north to the Galilee. Um, and that he spends the next 18 months in the, in the great Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. During this time frame, uh, many, many miracles. Uh, he's seeking crowds. He's traveling throughout the Galilee, saturating the land with his twofold claim. Again, to be Messiah, to be a king, and to be God in the flesh. Um, the, the Messiah means anointed one. And so the kings would have all been anointed ones. They, they would have been anointed as king. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and claims to be the Messiah, he is claiming to be king. Uh, they, the, the Jewish people would have absolutely known what that meant. Um, and he's claiming to be God. So not only is he just, uh, he's not just any king. He is, he is God in the flesh, king who, who you know, they're going to think back to, again, that, that Davidic covenant, that Davidic dynasty, they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Uh, number three, in spite of the undeniable proof Jesus offers in defense of the truth of his claims, Israel finally rejects him and his offer. Now, Jesus discerns that spirit of disbelief his disciples and apostles do not. There are two great moments of rejection which bring this phase of Jesus' ministry to a close. So, 
the end of his public ministry, the, the great rejections, you've got um, the unpardonable sin in, in Matthew 12. You actually, before that, um, in Matthew 11, he actually talks about the cities within the Galilee that had rejected him. He had gone there, he had preached, he had done these miraculous things, and they had not repented. Okay, so clearly the people are not accepting him for who he is and what his message is. And then in Matthew 12 is the, the unpardonable sin where, where Jesus heals the man and, and the, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders say, you healed them by him by the power of Beelzebub. Like the, Satan empowered you to heal that man. And that, you know, that's the, that, that whole man, you, you just blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That, that is the rejection, the full out rejection of the religious leaders with Jesus in Matthew 12. The second one is... In John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, he feeds the 5,000, um, everyone is happy, everyone's full, he spends the night uh, out there, and then the next day they're back in Capernaum, and the people hear about it, and they go to him, and they're like, you know, hey, where's Jesus? They find him, and Jesus says, like, you're not here for me and my teaching, you're here because your, your bellies were full, right? You're here because... You were hungry and I gave you food. But, but if you want the bread that lasts, you have to eat of my flesh and drink my blood. You have to, you know, I am the bread of life. That is that whole bread of life discourse in John 6. And at the end of that, in, in uh, John six sixty six, uh, it says that many disciples rejected the message. Did I say 666? Six, six? Yeah, 666. Six, six. Um, sorry, I thought I like made it especially dark. Uh, John 6. 66. Um, it says that many disciples rejected the message and left, right? So they rejected him. They rejected that message. I am the bread of life. He connects it to Moses. I am that. You know, they, they got hungry again. But with me, you will never go hungry again. And they said, no, this is, this is not. And so, so you've got a full-scale rejection of, of the cities within the Galilee. You've got the religious leaders that reject him. You've got the people rejecting him. And so you, you, he then moves. Jesus then moves from... The public ministry uh, into his private ministry. Okay, so so this is going to be well, uh, private ministry, but private preparation is how it's put here. It's about six months. So he seeks privacy. He avoids doing miracles. He's fleeing areas populated by Jews. And this this time frame is especially important to him and his disciples. Right? He is training his disciples uh, for what is to come. So. Excuse me. Notice that Jesus' emphasis and tactics, tactics changed dramatically at this point. He had been seeking crowds. Now he's seeking privacy. He had been working miracles freely. Now he seeks to avoid miracle working in an attempt to avoid the consequent multitudes of the people. He had been speaking openly and plainly. Now he speaks in parables. He starts to give parables and teach the secrets of the kingdom of God is what it says often in the, you know, I am teaching these things so that people will know. And, and, and this is where he starts to talk about things how, like he's going to go away, but he's going to come back. Uh, and, and things like that, that the people that can't understand what he is saying, the, the ones especially who don't follow him, those who have rejected him, don't know what he is saying. Number four, he had been traveling throughout the land of the Jews. And now he begins to move into non-Jewish territories, Syrophoenicia, Decapolis, and Caesarea Philippi. Um, the culmination of this period is finally uh, finds solitude with his apostles, where he openly foretells his death for the first time. Uh, so the, the, Jesus finally gets him and, him and his apostles to the, the region of Caesarea Philippi. And 
I know we've talked about this, but Caesarea Philippi was essentially where Roman soldiers went on holiday after uh, when they had, were, were not fighting and they were off, they would go, but they would go there and it was just a, a huge debaucherous place. Um, and, and, and no Jew would go near there, uh, right? And so Jesus takes him, his apostles and they go near there in that region. They don't go to Caesarea Philippi specifically, but it is in that region where they're alone that he tells them, uh, you know, that, that he is going to die. And of course, they are horrified. They are horrified. Um, and, but it, it, he recognizes that, that their faith is waning, that, that, that her, their faith is staggered by this, uh, this, this new information. And so this is where Jesus takes uh, the three and he is transfigured uh, before them. It happens in, in, in this time frame. Okay, so that lasts about six months. The last six months, or the, the next six months, are what's called a time of mixed focused. Uh, Jesus presents himself to the people of Judea and Perea, but all the while continues to prepare his uh, witness disciples, witless disciples for his death. And so this is in and around Jerusalem. It's the final six months before his passion. He makes his way uh, back down into the area. He goes to Jerusalem to the, for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, and then he ministers in the Judea area for a final time, avoiding Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, uh, and then to Perea and ministers until the sister of Lazarus sent for him. So then he goes to Bethany, and he raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And then he goes and he hides out, and doesn't hide out, but he, he goes uh, quietly and, and stays in, in Ephraim. Uh, and, and remains uh, secret until the, the, he sets out for the final Passover. So that last section takes about six months. And then the final events, uh, several weeks, his final trip to Jerusalem, his Passion Week, and then the resurrection ministry. So if we remember, the, the journey that Jesus took to, uh, again, I'm not going to have a map, but if this is uh, Israel... Right? This is Israel, south and north. He goes up through the Judea area, Samaria, Galilee, and then back across uh, to the other side of the Jordan uh, and comes down. He comes back across. Uh, because if you come in from east to west, you, you would go into Jericho. Uh, and that's where he meets uh, Zacchaeus, that whole encounter. But then you go up to uh, Jerusalem. And, and he went this way. Again, very strategic. He went this way to because... He, would, he, he essentially gathered with and, and, and started to meet with and, and, and the whole crowds that were going to Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, they all were going together. And, and we, you know, we talked through the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, you know, you got to thank Jesus and his apostles um, and, and all of these pilgrims that were going to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, singing these Psalms, uh, making their way down. Jesus probably still teaching on some level um, and so then they go into Jerusalem and he's stirring that crowd uh, to, to, to favor right and that's how that, that dramatic entry that people know that Jesus is coming that's where that dramatic entry into Jerusalem happens um, that, that triumphal entry as we call it so number two he dramatically enters Jerusalem um, and then he cleanses and possesses the temple again so so this is what I think is so Interesting. So the, the 
in the religious sect, you've got the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are deeply in with the Romans. Uh, they control the temple. Right? They, they're the, 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 the ones who oversee the temple and all the regulations that happen at the actual temple. And they are in tight with the Romans. The Pharisees, they're the, the leaders of the people. Right? So they oversee the, the synagogues. And they're the ones who are all over uh, the, the country, but really dealing locally with the synagogue. So they're of the people. Well, when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, early, early in his ministry, who does he offend? The Sadducees, right? The people of the temple, right? And the Pharisees at that point are probably like, you know, ha, ha, ha. They got, he got you. This guy came in. What are you going to do about it? Well, then the, he spends the next, you know, year and a half of his ministry uh, irritating the Pharisees because he's going locally. He's going to the cities. He's going to the synagogues. He's stirring them up. And so this time when Jesus comes back and cleanses the temple the second time, he's upsetting. He's already got the Pharisees upset with him. And he's upsetting the Sadducees yet again. And that is when the collusion happens between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so within five days, he is on the cross. Right? It's pretty astounding. So, Passion Week, he keeps the Passover. That's when they have the, the Last Supper. He is then arrested, tried, and crucified and buried. And the third day, he, he rises from the dead. He has a 40-day ministry on earth. And then his ascension to the Father from the Mount of Olives. So, that is uh, the, the scope of the life of the you know, uh, chronological survey. It's... There, there are, um, you know, it's, it's not perfect. You know, there are multiple, multiple versions of, of the chronology of the life of Jesus. But this, I think, gives a really good idea as you're reading through these Gospels of, of the, the natures of his ministry. Right, First down in the south, in and around uh, Jerusalem and, and the Judea, it getting hot because of the rest of John the Baptist. Him going up north to the Galilee. Uh, by, by the way... As he goes through Samaria on the way up to his Galilean ministry, that's where he encounters the woman at the well. Um, and then he's there for 18 months. A large chunk of his ministry is right out of base out of Capernaum, which is on the, the kind of north side of the um, uh, Sea of Galilee up there. And he, he, that's kind of the home base for a lot of his ministry. And then eventually coming back down to uh, Jerusalem. So... Any questions on that? Um, just it's just really for, for you to have a, a an overview, a sense of what is happening um, on a on a higher level uh, as you're reading through these uh, stories, and you start to see it. You start to see this leading to this, leading to this, leading to this. And and I'm glad I, if you stick with the reading plan and re read through it at a, at a fairly quick clip, I think you'll start to see this uh, chronology play out like you start to see like oh yeah and that is that and i know it's coming next and and, and i think it it does make it not just interesting but it, it helps it come alive a little bit any questions on that all right so uh the next page is really it's just 10 important insights uh basic to a proper understanding of the life of christ um i'm not going to go through all 10 of them um but a couple of that i think are, are of, I don't want to say more important, but the ones that stand out to me that I think are really important. Um, number one, in his incarnation, Jesus took upon himself genuine human nature. Thus, 
except that those relatively occasional times when the Holy Spirit directed Jesus to access his divine attributes, he lived out his life under the actual and real limitations intrinsic to unfallen humanity. Um, Dr. Bookman, who uh, David's father-in-law, Erica's dad, who uh, has really been of utmost help with all, a lot of this stuff that we have, uh, he, he has, I don't know if it's from him, but he has the old, like, you know, Jesus is not Clark Kent. Right, you know, you know when Clark Kent is Superman, but he he just puts on the clothes, so he's he just doesn't look like Superman, right? That's not what Jesus is doing, right? Humanity is not the disguise, right? He is he is somehow fully God and fully man, and and the thing that I think that is most interesting that as you read the Gospels, that he he lived out his life as a human. Right? He, he, when the Spirit descends on him, I think he is fully uh, living in accordance, walking in step with the Spirit, fully following the Spirit's leading. Um, and, and when he says, you know, be holy as I'm holy, be perfect as I'm perfect, he's able to say that to us because he was not acting out of his godness. Right? So much of what he was doing is out of his humanity, except, as it says, the few times when I think Spirit-led accessed his divine nature, um, he is living out of his Humanity, which is really uh, important for us because human, and like he, he died for humanity as a human, right? And that became so important to his life is the fact that he, in, in our life, is the fact that he was fully, fully human. Um, number three, throughout his public ministry, Jesus made two explicit claims concerning himself. He claimed to be the Messiah of Israel, and he claimed to be God come in the flesh. The claim to Messiahship, i.e. to be king of Israel, was cleverly encoded to appeal to Jews, but to appear innocuous to the Roman overlords. Okay? To claim the deity was couched in figures and terms compelling and unmistakable to Jewish hearers. So here's the thing. He had two claims. I am God and I am king. Why was he crucified? Because he was, he was claimed to be... That's what the Jews... The Jews... It's not that they didn't care that he was claiming to be king, but they hated, blasphemously hated that it was that he was claiming to be God in the flesh. Okay? They wanted to kill him because he was, God, he was claiming to be God in the flesh. Right? But they couldn't get Rome to kill him because Rome didn't care if he was claiming to be God in the flesh. But Rome would care if he was claiming to be a king, a seditionist. That is... Uh, that is punishable by death. And so Jesus, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, is able to couch his, his words and his ministry and his uh, claims in ways that the Jewish hearers would absolutely know what he was talking about. Uh, and the Romans would, would most, mostly care less until, you know, until it was time. I'm going to jump down to number seven. Uh, Jesus never explicitly spoke about his death until uh, within the months of the event. When he did speak of it, nobody accepted it, especially the apostles. This unwillingness to accept Jesus' plain and oft-repeated statements seemed to have been a function of two influences. First, the apostles were crippled by the popular rabbinic misperception of the messianic hope, which had little or no room for a suffering or dying messiah. Second, the apostles were greedy for the chief places in the kingdom, which is, uh, Jesus had promised them. And they didn't want to hear about the suffering by him or by them. So really that first one, part of, part of that struggle is that 
idea of a suffering servant, which they should, they, you know, they didn't have the Gospels, but they had the Old Testament, which clearly speaks of a suffering servant. And so much of the, the struggle with uh, Jewish people today is that idea of uh, Jesus couldn't have been Messiah because the, the Messiah won't suffer. Right? He won't suffer like Jesus suffered. That's impossible. And so that, that getting over that hump uh, of belief was, was a huge obstacle for the uh, disciples and the apostles. Um, so, so just keeping that in mind. And I'm going to jump down to number nine. Throughout his ministry, but especially as his passion approached, Jesus demonstrated himself to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. In at least three specific identifiable ways, Jesus orchestrated the events of his passion so that it would unfold precisely how and when the Father intended it to. A, by means of raising Lazarus and then the route he took to Jerusalem, set this, Jesus set the stage for his triumphal entry, exciting the city of his arrival, and then alerting them to the moment of his arrival. So again, Jesus is smarter than we are. <laughs> he was smarter than the, the people that he was with. He was, he was absolutely not aimlessly wandering. He was very, very strategic. And he did things in a way that, that brought about the outcome that he desired. And when he walked, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with a crowd chanting his name, you know, he knew exactly what he was doing. And he orchestrated it. And it's really amazing in that way. B, by means of the second cleansing of the temple on Monday, Jesus deliberately galvanized Pharisaic and Sadducean hostility. Once those two sects had united in their murderous hatred of Jesus, it took them only five days to get him on the cross. I mentioned this earlier. C, by means of his carefully maintained popularity with the masses, Jesus ensured that the Sanhedrinist would have to involve the Romans in his execution, and thus that he would die, not by stoning, but by being lifted up in crucifixion. The, the, the Jews, when they did uh, kill somebody for breaking the law, it was by stoning, but... Prophetically, uh, we know that the Son of Man must be lifted up, and he was, because he was actually killed by the Romans. So again, strategic in that way. Um, any, uh, you know, you take this home, it's a resource. Uh, the other thing as you're reading, the, the chronology is a resource for you to, to refer back to if you need it. But um, any questions, comments, thoughts on anything David said or I said? Yes, sir. I, I think he had access to them. Like, I think at any point, I think this is even kind of what Philippians 2 speaks to. I think it's, the, it's not that he didn't have access to them. I think he chose not to use them. And that he would only use them or access them divinely when the Spirit led him in that way. Right? So, uh, it, which is, I think, it's hard to comprehend, I guess, uh, because, you know, he's always God and, and, and he's one of the Spirit. And how does that all work? But that, I mean, that's, I mean, would you... Okay, yeah, I think, that, uh, I, I think a really I, a verse that I go back to often is was Hebrews four. You know um, that he was tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. And I, I you know, I, I like to say, if Jesus lived the life that I live, you know, he, he couldn't have like known. Well, there's going to be a, a a chariot racing around the corner past my house tomorrow when I step outside, and I might say a cuss word. So I'm going to wait. Uh, an extra three seconds before I step out, and then I'll go out. Like, I, I, I think there's something to the fact that he, you know, like Matt said, he voluntarily set aside his divine attributes 
so that he could live like we live. And I, I think one of the other things that's really hard for us is we've had 2,000 years to get used to the fact of him being God. We struggle with the fact that he was actually human. Nobody, when he was living, would have struggled with the fact that he was human. They were struggling with the fact that he was God. And I, I actually do think that we do well sometimes to back up and spend a little time thinking about what it meant that he actually was human. He, like, you know, like Matt said, he wasn't Superman. He actually wasn't Superman. He was totally God and holy man. So, All right, well, let me pray for us, and we'll be uh, dismissed. Lord, thank you again for this evening, for the opportunity uh, to have your word, to uh, be able to access it, to have had, uh, by your grace and mercy, many, many people have studied it and helped us where we can have information readily available at our fingertips as we're reading it. Uh, for teachers who have passed it along down through, the, through history, um, but, but especially as we enter into this time where we're reading about Christ, that I pray that you would help this uh, time uh, uh, like we haven't read it before, that it would be new and fresh to us and that we would experience him more and learn about him more and know him deeper because of uh, engaging your scripture. We know that it is living. We know that it is active, sharper than, sharper than every, any double-edged sword. And so we, we pray that it, it would come to bear on us, especially related to uh, the life of our Savior. I pray that for us. I pray that for hope. I pray that you would protect us and bring us back uh, uh, next week and next time uh, safely. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.